1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, smile sweetly at the person next to you and maybe they'll share with you. Um, That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 21. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him in, in the fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoping not to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. In will come up now. Well, good afternoon. Try again. Good afternoon. That's much better. It's great to be uh, at EU and uh, it's my third EU meeting for the week. Uh, for some of you, you've been here more than once, but for most of you, I imagine it's your first EU meeting for the week. But it's great to be back at EU uh, because 30 years ago, I sat where you sit. And when I heard that I had this topic of the resurrection, and as I looked through the topics, I actually thought, wow, I've got the best one. Isn't that great? I've got the long straw rather than the short straw. And I was excited for another reason as well, and that is that my very first EU, or supposed EU talk, it wasn't really an EU talk, but the first time I'd come to an EU function was on a talk on the resurrection. And I'm really hoping to do better today than what happened on that occasion. Uh, let me tell you about it. The mid-70s, and uh, I'd come to uni, uh, this great university, after which the whole city is named, and <laughs> being the first member of my family to ever enter into these hallowed halls, although I was already a Christian, uh, I didn't know anything about campus ministry. I was keen to be involved but it was hard to know which one to choose. Let me tell you what was around in the 70s. Uh, student life was around in the 70s and I'm sure it's still around today. That was one option. Uh, navigators were around as a big group on campus. I don't think they're here uh, still. Uh, SCM, Student Christian Movement, are they still around? SCM? Yeah, they are. Okay. Uh, the Newman Society was here, uh, that was a Roman Catholic group. Uh, there was a, a sort of a Pentecostal charismatic group uh, which was called Friday Group, uh, but it was very confusing. They first started meeting on Fridays at lunchtime and uh, they realised very quickly that Friday is not the ideal day to have a campus lunchtime meeting, so they moved their meeting time to Thursday but it was already too late, the name had stuck, so there was Friday group that met on Thursday at lunchtime and that was just far too confusing. And then, of course, there was EU. Back then we had terms, not semesters, 
and term one ended at Easter. And so for the first few weeks I didn't go to any. Until came about Easter time and there was advertised around university a combined service, not a public lecture but like a church service, of all of these groups, all of them with the exception of navigators, the ones I've mentioned, coming together, uh, EU included, and having an Easter service in the Great Hall. Well, these were the days of the mid-70s. Everybody was talking about the fact that Christians needed to come together, give you a bit of a historical background. 1977 is the formation of the Uniting Church, so it's sort of in the, in the wake of all of that sort of stuff. So I thought this was great, let's all come together. Well, when I went along to that service, it didn't take too long to work out that we all really hadn't come together. We were all in the one building, but I, I sat next to a girl from EU, as you do, and uh, as we were singing one of the hymns, which was, I have decided to follow Jesus, uh, she sung at the top of her lungs, I've been elected to follow Jesus. So, already, even in the hymns, there was uh, division going on. But it was when the preacher got up to preach that the division really happened. You see, this preacher said in her sermon on the resurrection that Jesus did not rise physically. It was a spiritual resurrection. That when Jesus rose again from the dead, he continued to live on through his church, through his influence, through his teaching, through his disciples. But having having spoken to this lady on several occasions since, I know what she believes, that the bones of Jesus are still rotting today somewhere in Palestine. Needless to say that I haven't heard of any other combined services in the last 30 years. Uh, EU was up in arms after the event and justifiably so. People were divided all over the place because although she had believed in a resurrection of sorts, it wasn't what you've got on your doctrinal basis there of a bodily resurrection of Jesus. Look at it there on your your, um, outlines. Point six of the EU doctrinal basis, I'm hoping to do much better today than happened in the mid-70s. This we believe the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now when I tried to pull that uh, statement to bits as I was preparing this talk, I worked out that there are only two important words in that sentence. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me tell you what one of the words is not. This is not one of them. The word resurrection is of no significance. Uh, This we believe, the resurrection of Jesus. Every person on the planet, every thinking person on the planet, believes in the resurrection of Jesus. You would be absolutely naive if you're a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, whatever you happen to be, you would be so naive if you didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the history of the world over the last 2,000 years. Look at the influence that the teaching of Jesus has had. Look at the effect of Jesus' ministry upon the world. In some sense, even if it's only a spiritual sense, there, you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. 
even if you are so naive as to ignore the evidence of which there is plenty for the historicity of Jesus and you say, I don't even believe Jesus lived. Even so, you'd be naive to deny the resurrection of Jesus because even if Jesus hadn't lived, there still has been a Jesus movement which has continued to have influence over the last 2,000 years. So, resurrection is really not a significant word in here as far as I'm concerned uh, because everyone believes in it. It's not very hard to convince people of that. There's only two words that I want to deal with today and I want to spend 10% of my time on the first one and the rest of my time on the other one. The first word that I want to talk about is dead. Last word. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Now some people seek to explain away the resurrection by denying the death of Jesus. Uh, Eminent scholars from this university, one in particular, is well published for saying that Jesus did not die on the cross. What she says is that Jesus fell unconscious on the cross. One of the people who were crucified with him was a man by the name of Simon Magus and when the two men unconscious were taken to the tomb, this man Simon Magus also happened to be a doctor and he revived Jesus and when Jesus appeared on Sunday morning it's just the fact that he'd swooned and he was now alive again. Uh, Bishop Spong in New York has also published similar things. Well, I don't know about you, but if you don't believe that Jesus actually died, you probably should read the account again. Uh, 39 lashes. After 39 lashes, nails pierced through his hands and feet, hung in the hot Mediterranean sun for six hours. Just to make sure he's dead, we get a spear and we pass it through his side. Now, dead people don't bleed, do they? But we know, uh, so the commentaries tell me, that if you pass a spear through the pericardial sac and into the heart, that shortly after death, the pericardial sac will actually go to a substance that is clear and the heart will actually contain blood, of course. Most scholars believe that Jesus was pierced not just through his side, but all the way into his heart. So, pierce you into your heart. And then we'll take you down from the cross and we'll put you in an airless tomb for three days. Uh, And if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. The scriptures are clear. It's a simple point. Jesus died. His heart stopped beating. His brain waves ceased to function. Oxygen did not go to his cells and so his body started to decompose. He started to rot He was dead. Okay? Absolutely dead. Okay? That's the first significant word. The second significant word, which I want to spend the rest of our time on, is this we believe the bodily. This one word bodily, which I think is significant, because although everyone, every thinking person, believes in the resurrection of Jesus, only Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and indeed I would be so brave as to say if you didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus you're not a Christian this is so central to our faith Christianity is a resurrection religion 
and it's not just resurrection, it is physical resurrection. So if you're following on the outline, you'll see there that when we get to Luke 24, that the women go on Easter Sunday morning and they find that Jesus has been raised. And then Jesus comes and he appears to the disciples and he says, look at my hands and my feet. Touch and see. Go on, try for yourself. Touch. You can do it. Touch and see. He says, a ghost does not have flesh, this is it, and bones. Need to be more specific? Bodily. Physical. That which had happened in decomposition following death had been reversed and this dead person was now alive. He says, give me some fish. Now, Casper the friendly ghost, if he eats fish, what happens to it? Falls on the floor, I guess. But Jesus proves that he is bodily raised by eating fish. Where does it go? I guess it goes into a digestive system. He has a body. He's eating. I hope that blows your mind away. It should. Now, if back, I was back in the 70s when I was where you are, uh, I would then go on and talk to you about evidence for the resurrection. See, back in the 70s, we were modernists. We didn't know what a modernist was in the 70s. That term hadn't been invented. We thought we were thoroughly modern. We never thought anyone would be postmodern. What could be more modern than modern? But we were modern. We were modernists back there. And uh, those of you who study such things will know that modernists are evidentialists. So if you want to talk to someone who's about 50 years of age, they're still an evidentialist, they're still a modernist, and if you want to talk to that person, convince them of the truth of the resurrection. Tell them about the fact that Jesus appeared on one occasion to 500 people. Tell them about the fact that people in the first century actually laid down their lives for the truth of the bodily resurrection and that people don't lay down their lives for things that they think are untrue. Clearly, the evidence is overwhelming about the fact that Jesus rose. It's historically true. And if you do that to the average modernist around the place, talk to your parents like that, if you can convince them, then they're 90% there in terms of becoming a Christian. Because if it's true, they'll actually follow it. But say that to a postmodernist, and they'll say, oh, whatever, so what? I mean, postmodernist, which is where you're at in terms of the, the world view of today's university student, is much less concerned with evidence and far more concerned with significance. And in particular, how is this significant for me? And I think you're actually asking the better question. I think your generation is asking the question the New Testament is asking, the so what question, is the right question for us to be asking about the resurrection. And so that's the question I'm going to ask about this word bodily. But before I move to there, let me just say in passing that historicity of the resurrection is at the absolute core of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, if it's not true, your faith is futile. The historicity of the resurrection is of incredible significance. But what does it mean to us? Well, I'm going to look at two levels. Firstly, the individual level. Secondly, the cosmic level. What does it mean for me as an individual that Jesus rose again from the dead? You see, Jesus dies as a martyr. There's nothing unique in that. Martyrs have died all the way through history. 
Jesus dies as an innocent, not guilty martyr. And again, there is nothing unique in that. Jesus dies as a martyr for the cause of the Gospel and there is nothing unique in that. Right the way through history, people like Polycarp and John Huss and uh, Tyndale and Cramner and even sadly people in the 21st century continue to die for the cause of Christ. Innocent people. But what is it that makes the martyrdom or the death of Jesus significant is that unlike the others, Jesus rose again, having died. The other thing that makes Jesus unique is that not only is Jesus innocent, but Jesus is also sinless. Can't say that of Tyndale. Can't say that of of us. Jesus is sinless and therefore death doesn't hold him. Now put your brains on here for a second. This is really significant. What are the wages of sin? You can tell me. The wages of sin are? Is? Death. Okay. If Jesus had sinned in his own body, whose sin would he be dying for? His own. Absolutely. How do you know that Jesus didn't sin? How do you know that having driven the nails through his hands in excruciating agony, when Jesus is lifting his whole body up upon the cross trying to breathe, how do you know that in the last seconds of Jesus' life that Jesus didn't curse God in his mind and thereby sin? How do you know? What were the wages of sin again? Death. Jesus shows that he is sinless because what is conquered? The result of sin. Death. The resurrection bears testimony to the fact that Jesus was indeed sinless. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin think about this became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself doesn't die for his sin but dies for our sin so that in him, Paul says, we might become the righteousness of God that his obedience might be credited to us. The resurrection is a statement for all the world to hear that the cross worked. That not only is death reversed but the sting of death, which is sin, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, has been dealt with. The resurrection is the proclamation that new life is possible, that forgiveness is possible. If you read through Acts of the Apostles, you actually see when you go to the apostolic preaching in Acts that the doctrine that is preached more often, even more often than the cross, is the resurrection. Because that is the thing that is unique. Yes, I don't want to downplay the cross in any way. Of course, we stand on the cross. But the cross, without the resurrection, is defeat. But the cross, with the resurrection, trumpets for all the world to hear that the sting of death has been removed. So where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. 
I don't know if any of you are doing philosophy. I've seen some of you are doing philosophy. I hope some of you are doing philosophy. Uh, but you'll know if you do philosophy that philosophers disagree over everything except one thing. Ask your philosophy lecturers and see how we go. I think this is right. This is one thing that philosophers agree on. What you think about death dictates the way you live. What you think about death dictates the way you live. Most Australians fear death more than anything else. Uh, Groucho Marx, you know the Marx Brothers? Not the Karl Marx variety, but the Marx Brothers variety. Uh, Groucho Marx uh, was famous for saying this, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Well, think about that. When you go to a funeral, where would you rather be? Giving the eulogy or in the casket? Uh, Do you think he's got it quite right? People's number one fear is public. Are you afraid of public speaking? Probably are. Most people are. It's probably not your number one fear, though. If death is annihilation, if death is all there is, I really don't know what you're bothering to do here at university. Because let me tell you, from where I stand, and I stand you know, a little bit further down the path than you stand, and I was sitting where you were sitting just yesterday. I mean, walking back into Sydney Uni, to me, just feels like I left yesterday and back today. 30 years have passed, and another 30 years will pass, and you do the maths, and I can do the maths, and I know where I'll be. So basically, yesterday I was here, and tomorrow I'll be gone. What's the point of trying to get a credit average to get into an honest What's the point of doing a PhD? What's the point of passing? Go out and party. It's going to be over tomorrow. If that's what you think about death, then start to think about what you're doing about life. And, and really, at this time of the semester with exams coming next week, that might be the advice that you want. Because death is no respecter of people. The statistics on death are really, really impressive. Ah, one in one. That's a pretty good statistic. And death will come to you irrespective of whether you have an honest degree or not. Irrespective of whether you have money. And here's the perversity of it. Irrespective even of age. Irrespective even of health. You can be an absolute gym junkie. But it will not protect you from death. So what are they going to say at your funeral? Did you see Graham Kennedy's funeral last week? I sat up late and watched Graham Kennedy's funeral. Did you know the whole theme of the funeral was? Thanks for the memories. Is that all it is? Is that all that gives significance to your life? What you think about death, and you have thought about it, you do think about it, dictates how you live. Let me tell you about somebody who I knew who was a great mentor to me, who was also a product of Sydney University EU. I came here in the 1970s. He came here in 1947. And as a first year engineering student at Sydney Uni EU, he used to say that he thought of himself as a good Presbyterian, whatever that is. He went to church every Sunday, but he was a good Presbyterian. Maybe you're a good Anglican or a good Baptist, but that's how he saw himself, as a good Presbyterian. And he went along to an engineering group, it wasn't an EU group, and he met a bloke. And this guy said to him, the famous words from Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this fellow, his name is Bill, said, I couldn't say that. 
There's no way that I could say to die is going. He started talking to people about the resurrection. And do you know something happened in 1947? He changed what he thought about death. And the whole of his life changed. He didn't end up becoming an engineer, it would be fine if he did, but he didn't end up becoming an engineer. He actually ended up becoming a Bible translator and spent his life translating the scriptures. But it wasn't just in career that his life changed. I remember standing beside him in 1981 at a funeral service, the tragic funeral of his daughter, who died at 13 years of age, suddenly, in a car accident. The minister had just finished his sermon preaching about the truth of the resurrection, which is our hope in such times. Now, could you imagine how embittered you could become against God at the loss of a 13-year-old daughter suddenly in a car accident. He turned to me and I can remember his exact words. His exact words were, it's all true. It's all true. I can remember in the 1990s going to visit him in hospital. He had liver cancer and he was dying. And every time that I visited him, we would pray together before I left until he got so sick that he couldn't pray and then I just prayed for him. But as I left the hospital each time, certainly towards the end, do you know what he said each time? All the way to the end. Something had happened in 1947 at the University of Sydney that this man stopped and he thought, can I really say, for me to live is Christ and to die is day. He was so impressed with the doctrine of the resurrection that the whole of his life changed because all of a sudden instead of death making a mockery of life death actually becomes continuation of living to the glory of God. We continue living to the glory of God and so therefore that allows us to live well. It allows us to work well it allows us to grieve well and it even allows us to die well in Christ because what we think about death dictates the way we live. We turn to death and we say, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and just as a bee, when it stings you, it leaves its sting behind and then it's powerless after that. Well, death has done its worst to Jesus. Sin has done its worst to Jesus. And what has Jesus done in the face of death? He has laughed in death's face by rising again from the dead bodily. Flesh, bones, reversal of the whole thing. That should affect you at the most deepest level individually. That is the Christian gospel. That's what it means individually. But it's not just individually. Jesus didn't just die so that you can go to heaven when you die much bigger than that. Because at a cosmic level we see that Jesus becomes the first fruits of a new creation. This whole idea of of first fruits is really important. See, Jesus is not the only one to have been raised in the New Testament. There's several resurrections in the New Testament if you think about it. There's the Jairus' daughter, there's the son of the widow of Nain, there's Lazarus, 
But these people, when they were raised from the dead, actually were raised back from the dead in the same bodies in which they died. In many ways, the same thing's happening down at RPA right now. People are dying all over the place at RPA, uh, in, in operating theatres and all over the place. And surgeons are down there and they're bringing them back to life. They're resuscitating them. Now, I don't want to downplay the miracles of Lazarus, etc. But in some ways, that's what happens. Yes, it's a miracle. But they only came back to life in their own bodies to die again. But Jesus is different from that in that Jesus rises in a transformed body that is the first fruit of a new creation. This whole idea of first fruit is a common idea in the Old Testament. On the first day of the week, of the Jewish week, which of course is Sunday, uh, what would happen is you could take along your first fruits, the first harvest, the first crops, to the temple and you would give it to the temple as a sign of the fact that the rest of the harvest as well belongs to God. That's what Jesus has done. He has promised the rest of the harvest. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all, this whole harvest, is going to be made alive. Now what is this whole harvest? Note there in 1 Corinthians 15.21 on your sheets there that you've got a, a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam who is Christ. Because of the rebellion of the first Adam, all die. Because of the resurrection of the second Adam, who is Christ, all will be made alive. Well, who are the all? Think back to Genesis 1. When God created the world, if you remember in Genesis 1, it was empty. Chaos. There was nothing there. And so in the first six days of creation, God fills this empty world with physical things. And so we read about the sun and the stars and then we read about the fish and the trees and the reptiles and the birds and the animals and then when we get to day six of creation he fills the world with uh, man and woman who are to be kings and queens who are to have dominion over this physical world that God has created. And when God looks at what he's created, the physical world, do you know what he says? Do you want to learn some Hebrew? You can do it. He says, he says, you got to do your thumbs well. Kitov. You do it? Let's go. Kitov. Kitov. Do you know what it means? It means it's good. That's what it means. Do you know Jacob when he sees Rachel? You know Rachel that Jacob works for for 14 years? Do you know she comes in? Do you know what Rachel, Jacob says about Rachel? It's exactly what he says. She's beautiful. God on number day seven of creation looks at the world and says, she's beautiful. Get off. Get off my hope. She's really beautiful. Okay? This is a beautiful physical creation that God has made. We know the story. Adam and Eve mucked it up. Now think about this. This is a really important point. So often we just think that Adam and Eve mucked it up, Jesus came to die for us, he rose again from the dead and therefore we can go to heaven when we die where Jesus is and we can leave the world behind and it will be destroyed. Who wins at that point if the world is destroyed? This is God's beautiful creation. The Bible doesn't just say that we hop in a space rocket and head off to heaven. 
The Bible says in Romans 8 that the whole of creation, the birds, the flowers, the plants and even the trees and even the rocks will sing out are groaning, awaiting the new creation. Jesus, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Matthew 19, 28, it talks about the renewal of all things. You see, if this world is just going to be annihilated, just like we're going to be annihilated, so the atheists tell us, well, if the world's going to be annihilated, we might as well just rape the environment. We might as well use up all the resources, use it for our own pleasure. But God looked at the universe, he said, Kitov, it's beautiful. And he said to you and to me, the kings and queens, vice-regents, have dominion over the created world because we are talking about a new heaven and a new earth. That's what you pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom become, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 21, we see the picture of the new Jerusalem and it is coming down from heaven to earth. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I haven't been there. I walk by faith and not by sight. But I do know that in Adam and Eve we were told to have dominion over the physical world. And I do know that the whole of creation is groaning, awaiting the new creation. I do know that physicality is important. How does God renew the physical world? Here it comes. By a physical death and by a bodily resurrection. That is the first fruits of all that is to follow. That is an amazing truth. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but this new creation that the scripture tells us about in terms of heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth that we read about, is going to be even better than Eden was before the fall. I know you English teachers don't like me saying this, but I'm going to say it's going to be more perfect than perfection. And you say it can't be more perfect. Well, think about it. Before the fall in the Garden of Eden, think about noble things like forgiveness, Is that there? Bravery in the face of treachery. Healing. Reconciliation. Faithfulness and sacrifice. Those things couldn't have been there without the presence of sin. Don't hear me wrong, God is not the author of sin and God is totally opposed to sin. But God is still sovereign of sin And God actually can even in his sovereignty use sin to resound even more to his glory. Isn't that what happens on the cross? What is the most sinful event that has ever happened in the history of the planet? It's the cross. It's also the most glorious. What is the result of sin? Death. But what does God do? He actually uses that which he is opposed to for he is even sovereign over the world of evil, not that he is the author of evil, but he is sovereign over such things and actually uses death to bring about life. And so in the resurrection of Jesus, all the evils that have ever happened to you, all the evils that you have ever done, 
can be nailed to the cross in Jesus and forgiven and then that same evil can be subsumed, taken up in the resurrection within which you become part of this new creation that will come to its consummation at the time of the second coming of Jesus. That is an amazing truth. It all hangs though on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so I want you to stop being dualists. Stop thinking that only the spiritual is important, the physical is not important. We wouldn't be here today if engineers hadn't built this building. God is concerned with physicality. So if you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, then go home tonight and celebrate physicality. Eat something that is really sumptuous. Uh, Drink something that is truly fine and hug someone who is really special. And if it's only your mother, that's fine. Go and hug someone. We rejoice in the physical world. Kitov. It's the beautiful world that is being renewed. But of course, we're not going to end up being self-indulgent as well because if we believe that physicality is important, then we will have compassion for people who've been affected physically by a tsunami. We will work hard to try and find a cure for AIDS. We will help homeless people and seek to minister to people not just spiritually because God looks at the Kitov, beautiful physical resurrection. He redeems physicality in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and he calls us to treat people holistically. And so we go on being what we were meant to be. That's why you're here at university. That's why you're training for a career, I hope so that if you're training to be a marine biologist, that you will exercise dominion over the ocean. If you're training to be a lawyer, that you will exercise dominion over justice. If you're training to be a teacher, you'll exercise dominion over the young or a nurse over health or so it goes on. Business even. So it goes on. We are here to exercise dominion. Do you know why? Because it's all good. Kitov. Oh yes, it's been spoilt. We need to be very careful of that. That's what makes the task even harder now, post the fall. But we are assured of a new creation through the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It was Abraham Kuyper, who was both a very famous theologian and also the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. He went on to become Prime Minister. He said this very famous statement, for there is no part of the universe of which God does not say, it is mine. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is not just about the resurrection of Jesus' body. It's not just even about the resurrection of your body, although that will be a part of it, which I'll come to in a second. It's actually about the resurrection of the universe, the resurrection of the cosmos, of taking it back to God's original intention. But as part of that, As part of that, so comes the resurrection of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.52 We read, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The day is coming, the new creation has begun with the resurrection of Jesus, but it is still, we are still living in a tension. Sin is still active in the world. 
We still need to deal with that tension but the day is coming when evil will be put away. In the meantime, we suffer in our bodies. My guess is that some of you are only here today because of the medication that you have taken. Your bodies are already starting to have ailments and diseases and I'm sure in a group this big that will be the case. And you know what? As time goes on, the percentage of you who have to use medication is just going to increase and increase. Your bodies are full of imperfections. The Kitol, beautiful creation, has been affected by sin. And really, you know, as you look ahead of you, you've either got two choices. You can all grow old and suffer more and more and more or you can die young. I don't see much else happening because this body is perishable. That's what's happening. We're perishing all the time. But when we come to the new creation of which we will be a part at the second coming of Jesus when it comes to the fulfilment of all that is given in the resurrection of Jesus, we read here that we will have the redemption of our bodies. That we will be given new physical bodies as part of the Kitov, beautiful new creation that is a going back to Eden and even better than Eden was. See, I don't know what sort of internment that you're planning. Uh, you've really only got three choices as far as I can see. You can be eaten by worms, or you can be eaten by sharks, or you can go out in the blaze of glory. I mean, they're really the main three. And either way, I mean, you'll end up in a worm's digestive system, in a shark's digestive system, or a lot of ashes. Whichever way you go, that if you know anything about the, the cycle of how atoms go around, I mean, it's perishable, it's going to go. But just as God did this most amazing thing that the rotting flesh of Jesus because that's what dead people are the rotting flesh of Jesus was not just raised but was raised in a transformed form and imperishable. So as part of the new creation those of us who are in Christ will also be raised with imperishable bodies that will resound to God's glory for all of eternity. And if you're a Christian, I hope that's what you're doing now. Everything you do, marine biology, chemistry, whatever it happens to be, telling your neighbour the gospel, what you're doing at church, everything you're doing is resounding to the glory of God and that will just keep on going and will improve. So it gives so much significance to the things I'm doing now because I know it's part of God's good creation. Of course, you can't be part of the new creation if you're still standing in your own sin. Before the physical resurrection of Jesus comes the fact that Jesus dies on the cross and becomes sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can't be part of the new creation and continue to reject God. It's all part of the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of new things, of all things. Therefore, it was with great wisdom and great foresight that our forebears in EU 75 years ago uh, said this in the doctrinal basis, number six. This we believe, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead.